0: Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Alright, we've got two more weeks to wrap up the book of Ephesians. This week and next. And Ephesians is a, is a letter that was written by a missionary in the Bible named Paul. Uh, it was written to the, uh, the church in Ephesus, a small cluster, a small gathering of people who were learning how to follow Jesus together in his very instructional book. And we've been going through this book since last February, on and off, and we got two more weeks, and I'm going to read today, and we're going to talk about Ephesians 6, 13 through 16. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there to Ephesians 6, 13 through 16, and as always, if you just want to listen, it's a good way to take in the Bible as well, just listening. Ephesians 6, 13. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let me pray for us. Father, we understand that spiritual truth, apart from the Holy Spirit living in us, interpreting and explaining spiritual truth through scripture sounds like nonsense. It sounds naive. It sounds foolish. But when the Holy Spirit is helping us look into the words of Scripture, He also helps us understand. He helps helps us to take these truths that we're learning and apply them to our lives. In other words, when you're helping us, we see the wisdom of Scripture. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what's true through your word, through the power of your spirit with us. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to talk about in that, in verse 13, is what does evil day mean? again, it feels like an ominous, dark, mysterious term. What exactly does that mean, evil day? I put a quote in your bulletin. You can follow along if you'd like. It's a quote by Abraham Karouvela from a book called Ephesians, a theological commentary for preachers, which basically means, helping preachers preach this good. (laughs) Without this book, I, I wouldn't be nearly as informed as I am by reading it. So what does evil day mean? Here's his quote. The context suggests a warfare that is ongoing, a spiritual warfare for our souls, not one that is yet to come. The evil day may therefore refer to a present reality marked by specific times of scary word here satanic attack that come with extraordinary force and when the temptation to yield is particularly strong what we learn through scripture and what we learn through life experience is that temptations come in varying intensities. Sometimes it feels like we're being tempted to step outside of God's way for us. Sometimes it feels like the intensity is 100%. The dial's turned all the way up, and it's really, really difficult to overcome that temptation. And then sometimes the temptation is just a just a gentle humming just beneath the surface. Maybe it's 5% tempted. And what the spiritual armor does for us is help us when that temptation feels like it's at 100%. Unfortunately for us, the, it's not at always at 100% intensity, it, it, it varies and dips and wanes and rises. But the spiritual armor is is made, is given to us to help us resist when temptation is the strongest. To resist always, but especially when it's at its greatest intensity. Much of the Christian life is about denying ourself from carrying out desires that we know that are destructive to us and, and to loved ones. That's that's essentially what it means. To be a disciple of Jesus. I mean, He modeled it his whole life all the way through his death. And the challenge for us is when these temptations are at their peak intensity to stand firm against them. Knowing that if we're able to resist that temptation when it is at 100%, for just that brief stretch of time that at the other side of that, God himself will personally re-strengthen us spiritually in new ways for the next round. And I want to give you a couple examples in scripture for you to reflect on, where we see that God helps us through temptation, and he also helps by strengthening us on the other side of temptation. We're going to look at this really quickly. Again, these are in your notes, and you can write them in the margins of your Bible if you don't have a bulletin. But these are ways that God helps us through temptation and strengthens us after we resist particularly intense moments of temptation. The first scripture for this, for surviving and standing in this evil day that Paul's talking about is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I'm just gonna let you reflect on that, read that yourself later. One of the, I think the marks of a, of a decent instructor is that people leave wanting to look into some things on their own. So I'm not going to even talk much about these verses, but 1 Corinthians 10, 13 teaches us that God has a governor on Satan as far as how much he's allowed to tempt us. God constrains our spiritual antagonist from tempting us beyond what we can handle. He doesn't let him go any further than what we can handle. And then, not only that, he provides an escape hatch in every situation. He doesn't let it go beyond what we can handle, and he provides a way out. That's 1 Corinthians 10.13. What about after we resist this temptation? Matthew 4.11. Matthew 4.11. Some of you know that Matthew 4 is when Jesus endured all the ways that Satan wanted to tempt him in that moment. There's a few really big ways that Satan was trying to push Jesus off of his identity as a beloved son of the Father. So he was tempting him in a variety of ways in Matthew 4. In Matthew 4.11, after, after Jesus resisted these temptations by quoting scripture, it says that angels came and ministered to him. Jesus experienced every temptation. He had the weakness of the flesh in operation just like we did, and He withstood it. And angels came to minister to Him. And it's a, it's, a, it's a pattern for us that we get to enjoy too. When we resist temptation, at the other side of that, we're ministered to by the Spirit and by angels. And then finally, 1 Peter 5.10, after you suffer a little while, in withstanding these temptations, 1 Peter 5.10 tells us that God Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you can just endure and remain faithful and keep standing on the other side of that, God will make you bigger, stronger on the inside. In ways that nothing else will. Now, people often think of dramatic in- images when we think of spiritual warfare. There's a, some weird videos online. There's, there's one where this lady who's allegedly possessed by a demon is crawling up the side of this church building. It's like, it's so weird and obviously fake. And that's the type of stuff that we think of when we think of spiritual warfare. There are certainly some strange occurrences in Scripture. I mean, Scripture does give us an allowance for that, but most spiritual warfare is ordinary rather than extraordinary. And what we find is that resisting temptation is our front-line strategy in the war against evil, which is why Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, temptation but deliver us from evil. Resisting temptation puts you on the front lines of the war against this present darkness. And the armor that God provides that we're going to talk about this morning is meant to help us resist the evil that is temptation. So start looking at these pieces. Verse 14. Stand... Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This means that we are to anchor ourselves in the reality of what God says is true in Scripture. Believing Him against all odds. Believing Him against all apparent contradictions around us. Anchoring ourselves in the reality of the kingdom. And this means we have to become very familiar with with what God says is true. Now scripture doesn't just reveal what is objectively true, like the hard facts, the hard data of what is true. It also reveals what is subjectively true. And we need to become familiar with both types of truth. We could put it this way, scripture doesn't just reveal what a Christian believes objectively, it reveals what it's like to be around a Christian. The inner atmosphere of the heart of a Jesus follower. And that's a form of truth revealed in Scripture that we often ignore. We often neglect by focusing on just all the objective truth data in Scripture. The subjective truth is just as important Jesus harped against this. And he taught his disciples to pay attention. Because what if I'm a young believer? I'm a young Christian. I just started following Jesus. And I started getting mentored by an older Christian who's going to teach me the ways of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this, this, this person who's a Christian that maybe teaches 10 different Bible studies and studies the Bible five hours a day and they really know Scripture... They're giving you all the objective data. You're a young believer. You're taking it all in. But they're they're mean. And they're impatient. And they're, they're arrogant. They're prickly. You're going to be tempted to think that that's what a Christian is. You're going to be tempted to think that that's what a Christian feels like to be around. And you're going to start acting like that. Because after all, this person knows a lot of objective data about Scripture. They can explain sanctification, justification. They can explain all these important, really cool words. But you always feel condemned around them. See, so they understand the objective data of Scripture without understanding the subjective truths that we are to embody. The spirit of the, of the truth, the spirit of fruit that is in us Functioning in us as we relate to one another. I think this is actually a real problem for the church in America. It's a real issue when we stuff our heads with knowledge and our hearts are left untouched by that same knowledge. If you are immersed in the truth of Scripture, you recognize that people who have been made new through genuine faith in Christ are kind. Subjectively, they're gentle. They're tender-hearted if we believe Jesus, if we believe Paul. They're not preoccupied with impressing others. They're gracious. They're not manipulative. They're not dropping humble brags every other sentence. They're not wallowing in self-pity. They're someone who is made much alive in Christ and joyful about it in an unforced, not over-the-top way. They're easy to be around. You don't feel condemned you don't feel judged you don't feel examined when you're around them that's the subjective truth the power of the spirit revealed in scripture but you have to really familiarize yourself with scripture to see that and to understand that when the world around you constantly tells you that what will really make you more happy and fulfilled is more ambition more power more prestige you'll begin to dis- to spot the destructiveness of that lie in scripture the more you're able to understand and recognize truth we need to be able to spot lies we need to guard ourselves with truth and that only comes through scripture it's that well-worn illustration of how do they teach the secret service to identify counterfeit money You've probably heard this illustration before because every pastor has said it five times. The way that you teach someone to identify counterfeit money is not by giving them counterfeit money to study. You teach them to spot counterfeit money by giving them the genuine article. What does a $20 bill look like? And you're going to spend 100 hours examining this $20 bill so that when someone puts a counterfeit in front of you, you recognize that this isn't true. This isn't right. This isn't real. This is counterfeit. It's the same way we recognize counterfeit truth. By fixing our gaze and by studying and becoming serious and committed students of Scripture so that we can spot the lies. The application for this is there's multiple ways you can engage with Scripture. You can listen to it. You can memorize it. You can write it on a card and reflect on specific verses that stand out to you. You can read it a little bit at a time or a lot at a time. You can use the New Living Translation. You know, if you're you're not familiar with the story of Scripture, and you just want to get familiarized with what's the Bible about, and I just need to understand it, you're not doing it specifically to study and to you know, microscopically where you're looking at one small little verse and trying to understand what does the original language say precisely, exactly in this little, you're just trying to get the big picture of it. You're just, you're new to it. You can use like the New Living Translation, you can use the message. We're not weird about that stuff at Southside. In fact, this is a, this is um, just an aside, but one of the ways you can it's, it's a helpful thing to think about when you're trying to spot like legalism, people get, who get caught up on minor strange things. Nitpicking minor details is always rooted in pride, always. When you are nitpicking minor little things, it's, it's a spot, it's a tell. If I'm talking with you and you're like looking at me condescendingly because I said someone could read the NLT, that's a tell. You've got some spiritual arrogance, that's all. We can deal with that. We're not weird about stuff like that at Southside, and we won't be. So, yes, we use the ESV. That's what I teach from. I like it, it's a comfortable, but also very um, accurate in a lot of ways translation, but we're we're not weird about it. Just pick a Bible that you feel good about and get the story of Jesus and who he is. The more immersed you are in the Bible, the more you'll begin to recognize what's true and what isn't. Let's keep walking through the passage. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, one way to think about righteousness is that it's the moral goodness of God. It's the beauty of God's moral goodness. That's how I have it here. And when we receive Christ through faith, one of the gifts we get is His righteousness. His moral goodness is, here's an old word, and you're gonna put your thinking caps on for a minute here. It's imputed. That's what the Bible uses. This word imputed. His moral righteousness, the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus is imputed to us by faith. Now, before you nod off and fell asleep, this is, really, this is actually really important. And I'm not just, I'm not just using that word because it's a, it's a weird word. It's helpful for us. So if you, can, if you can get this down, whether you're 12 or you're 70, this will save you a lot of headaches if you understand this concept. Let's go to where I got this word. If you're following along the bulletin. It's in there. It's Romans 4, 20 through 24. This is the King James Version. Right? The King James Version gets a lot right, and it screws some things up terribly, too. So it does a lot of really, really good things, but just like any translation, it is flawed. It's hard for some people to hear that, but that is true. This is the King James Version. This is something that it really gets right. He staggered, this is Romans four twenty 20-24, I, I should set this up. He's talking about Abraham. Abraham was given a promise by God in Genesis 12. God said, I'm going, to make you, I'm going to make your descendants great. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You're going to have a ton of descendants. He kept saying, look at the stars of the sky. You're going to have more descendants than the stars of the sky. And we're going to bless the entire world. It's going to be blessed through you. There was only one problem. Abraham was really old. His wife was really old. And they didn't have any kids yet. And here God is coming to say to him, hey, you're, you're going to have a ton of, you're going to have a huge family. It's going to cover the whole earth. whole earth is going to be blessed through your descendants. I'm really old. My wife is really old. We don't have any kids. We're past, you know. Actually, the Bible says um, Abraham was as good as dead. <laughs> Abraham was as good as dead. And here God is telling him he's going to have kids. And guess what? He believed God. Against all odds, against what would be a normal circumstance for someone to have children, Abraham said, okay, I believe you. And God gave him righteousness because of it. So here's, that's the backdrop to Paul's explanation of this in Romans 4. I'll just read Romans 4, 20 through 24. Again, we're learning what imputed means. So Abraham, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. But was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, God was also able to perform. And therefore, because of that, because he had faith that God could do what he said he would do, therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. He's about to say, this is relevant for you too. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. The word that the ESV uses there is it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to us. As righteousness through faith in Jesus. The NIV said it was credited to him instead of imputed. And it's credited to us as righteousness. So in the same way, when we put our faith in Jesus, that Abraham put his faith in God, we receive credit for Jesus' righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us. Imagine you're finishing up your school year and you're you have your last exam you have senioritis I started getting senioritis in seventh grade (laughs) but you have senioritis you go into your classroom your teacher's retiring she's like checking out as well and she's like you know what I'm in a really good mood today and I know that some of you didn't, t- that you didn't study for this final exam. I know you didn't. And I know some of you, a couple of you, studied many, many, many hours. And I'm going to give a gift to everyone in this classroom. We're going to take this final exam, and then I'm going to grade them. And everyone in the classroom is going to be imputed the grade of the highest score. So whoever gets the highest score on this test, I'm going to credit the entire classroom as having that grade. Now, a lot of students would protest that because they would feel like they deserve that grade. They earned it. They were good and they studied, so give me the grade because I deserve it. They don't deserve it. And guess what? The same, the same type of people say the same type of thing about the Gospel of Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus is so scandalous, it offends people. It's so scandalous because the, the people that feel like they're just naturally good people, look at the people that aren't naturally good people and they say, they don't deserve. They don't deserve this. Look at me. I've been faithful all my life. I became a Christian at three years old. And I've never done anything too bad. It's not fair. And Jesus says, first of all, you're worse than you think. And second, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. He said that sarcastically to some people who were giving him a hard time about the gospel. That's what imputed means you are given the righteousness of Jesus for no other reason. than placing your faith in him. The bridge between the righteousness of Jesus and us being given his righteousness is our faith. Now, Jesus is the one who saves. He's the active ingredient. He's the main actor in your salvation. But the bridge to that salvation. Is your faith in him. And when we put our faith in Christ, God looks at us and He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That was the great exchange at the cross. All Every sin that's ever been committed in the world was put on Jesus on the cross. Everything you've ever done wrong was put on Jesus at the cross. And He received the punishment that we deserve. So that when we put our faith in Him, what God sees is not our sin anymore, but the perfection of His Son. That's what it means to put on the righteousness of God. And here's a couple verses that are helpful. They're in your bulletin again. For It's Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the, right, the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The one man's disobedience, Adam, brought sin into the world. Now everyone's disobedient. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus, who lived the perfect life, the many will be made righteous. Because he died for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be. To be sin who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned and he was made to be sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And how does that defend us against spiritual attack? Because Satan is literally named an accuser in Scripture. scripture. That's what his name is. That's what Scripture calls him. And he's going to spend the rest of your life attacking your standing as a beloved and righteous child of God. He'll try to convince you that you're a loser. He'll try to convince you that you're not worthy of his love. Look at your sin. Look how you keep screwing up. You're hopeless. And you can say, if we're up to my righteousness apart from Christ, you'd be right. But I've been given the righteousness of God. And the more you understand that, the more you start living out of that reality and you start not only being righteous from the inside out, you start acting that way. That's another word. That's impart. We're imputed. Given our new identity as righteousness of God, imparted, now we begin to live out of that identity. But the first thing is you've got to understand the imputed part. All right, you can take your... Thinking caps off. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Have you ever thought about that? The wake that you leave behind. What it's like to be around you. The potential of the gospel is that we become carriers of peace everywhere we go. Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. We are people who embody the peace of Jesus. And we are people who carry the message and are ready to carry the message to everyone who will listen, of how they too can have peace between themselves and God and between themselves and others. Peace. After you enter a conversation, do things calm down or do things get more heated? Are you contributing godly heavenly peace godly wisdom is peaceable by nature that's what james tells us when you walk into a room does does it feel a little lighter or you just come in really intense and make things more intense and stir up arguments and what wake do you leave behind what type of person are you that'll tell you a lot about what you believe about jesus and the gospel Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I think this is your only fill in the blank today. Faith, here's one simple definition resting into what God says is true. Resting into what God says is true. I think it's Isaiah 7, 9, maybe, that says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You ever meet a Christian or a human being who's just all over the place, extreme highs and extreme lows? If you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. So having faith that enables you to resist these flaming darts that Satan is lobbing at you is one of the more important aspects of the armor that God gives us. Now, we need all of it, but this is a big one. God actually says, apart from faith, you can't please me. It's impossible to please me apart from faith. So what I want to end with is I want to give you one example of how you can Use faith in God to protect yourself from the flaming darts that the evil one is lobbing at you. Just, the Bible's full of stuff like this. But here's one helpful verse that helps you across multiple fronts of attacks. It's Psalm 8411. This would be one that's worth memorizing. Psalm 8411. For the Lord God is a sun and shield... The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Walking uprightly happens after you've been imputed, you receive the righteousness of God, and the more you understand that you are a beloved child, the more you act like that, the more you act righteously. If the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So, How does this help us resist temptation? How does this protect us? Just this one little verse when Satan's lobbing darts. First, when Satan tempts me to believe that God is leaving me to figure out my own life all on my own. When you believe that God's disinterested in your life, it's a flaming dart, it's a temptation. When you believe that God doesn't care about your life, he's not going to give you guidance. He's not going to give you insight. He's not going to give you a wise and loving heart. You're just going to keep making stupid decisions. You're not going to have any direction as to what path to take. You're, you're just here to figure it out on your own. You've got no help from God. That's a lie. That's a flaming dart. And this verse says, I can have faith that God is like a Son. In the ancient world, the sun and the light represented insight, knowledge, wisdom. Guidance. So I don't have to believe that God is leaving me all on my own to figure out my life because He's like a sun. He guides and He directs and He gives me a brighter and wider perspective of what's happening in the world. In the dark, I can just barely see what's right in front of me. But when the light is on, when the sun is out, I can see for miles. That's what godly wisdom does. That's what guidance from the Spirit does. And sometimes, yes, He just guides the next step on the path But you will never be left without guidance. Flaming dart number two that this passage addresses: when Satan tempts me to believe that I'm exposed to all of my enemies' harmful attacks against me, I'm just an—it's open season. I've got no protection. My enemies can do whatever they want to me. This verse reminds us that God is my shield. God is my protector. If God doesn't want you harming me, I'm untouchable. No weapon formed against me will prosper, Scripture says. And if God allows you to harm me, it'll be for my good. In the worst case scenario, you kill me, I'm with Jesus. You can't touch me. I live with a shield. God, you have to get through him. And He won't allow you to do anything He doesn't want to happen to me. Flaming dart number three, when Satan tempts me to believe that I have to make a name for myself in this world. I have to have ambition. I have to, you know, whatever it looks like for you to climb the ladder, to be known, to be famous or powerful, or whatever it is, to walk into a room and have people like, wow, look who's here. Like, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to honor yourself in other people. You don't need to promote yourself to other people because someone else will do that for you. This passage says that I can have faith that God will bestow favor and honor on me in His time and in His way. It's not bad to want to be honored. But let God do it. And someday, in some way, He will honor you publicly. That's a promise. So you don't have to wear yourself out with ambition trying to make a name for yourself. You can trust that Jesus will in his time and his way. And finally, the last flaming dart is when Satan tempts me to believe that good things just don't really happen to me, that I'm destined to live a life of blah. Blah. My life is never really going to be that good. This is a this is this is a flaming dart from Satan. My life is never really going to be that good. I'm not really ever going to get to do things that I want to do. My life feels colorless. Feels black and white. Feels gray. There's never going to be any adventure. I'm not going to have anything that I want. I'm just kind of taking a vow of poverty and sucking it up through life, and one day I'll get a golden crown. (laughs) This verse says that I can have faith that no good thing will He withhold from me. I.e., Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not... what? Need? I shall not want... No matter the circumstances of your life, God can be so active in your life that you're not, you're not wanting for anything. You don't need the stuff that it feels like everybody else in the world needs. You're content and joyful and happy exactly as your life is, and God will continue to give you good things. So you can rest from striving. You can rest from fighting for those things and trust that God will give it to you. Our spiritual antagonist is constantly lobbing these fiery darts at us. And our responsibility is to shield ourselves from these darts by resting into what God says is true in Scripture. That's the shield of faith. This was a lot. I understand that. This was a lot. So if you, you might need to listen to this another time or two to kind of really absorb it. I don't usually like covering that much territory. Um, but if you need to listen to it, I want to remind you that we have a podcast. You can search for Southside Worcester. Listen to it slowly. I often do that with teachings where I'll just pause it and write some notes down and think about that for a while and then come back to it and listen to the next section. That might be helpful with something like this. I apologize that there's so much to it, but I want, to get us, I want us to get through Ephesians um, by next week, so. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.